Hello and welcome to this week's Isolation Cast from the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. My guest this week is a really special one. I'm thrilled to have spoken to Nisha Dolan, author of the newly released Exciting Times, one of the year's most hotly tipped debuts. The subject of a seven-way bidding war, it tells the story of Ava, a young Irish woman teaching English in Hong Kong, and her romantic relationships with Julian, a rich banker, and Edith, a Hong Kong local who went to an English boarding school. Deadpan and sharp, it examines themes of class, sexuality and power. I love chatting to Nisha. As an autistic person, she was fascinating on her experience of lockdown and how in some ways releasing a book under these circumstances has been a relief. We also discussed writing about queerness, giving up apologising, and how it feels to be compared as a first-time Irish author to Sally Rooney. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So Nisha, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So obviously we're doing this remotely, as I've been doing with all my podcasts recently. We're talking over our laptops. I just wondered, where are you at the moment and how is your lockdown going? I'm staying in my parents' house in Dublin and my lockdown has actually been quite mad, um, both because I have more going on in my life than normally because my book is being published and also because I'm autistic. So what feels like a low level of stimulation to other people is still an extremely high one for me. So um, actually my brain just is exploding at the moment and it's really hard to say that to people who are complaining about boredom or about desolation or lack of purpose or whatever because you don't want to sound unsympathetic but it's like well you can have a little bit of my external stimulation if you want. That is really interesting I hadn't thought about that before when you say your brain is exploding has that I mean are you feeling bad is it quite a miserable time for you or do you have coping strategies for that? I wouldn't class it as happiness or unhappiness because there's almost too much for me to develop an emotional reaction to it. I only consciously have emotions that I can attach adjectives to if I have the space to process. It's more like the feeling of popping a bubble in wallpaper and then another pops up somewhere else. So I'm just engaged in that sense, I suppose. And in that context, what has it been like having your debut novel out? I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, it's got absolutely rave reviews uh this has been one of the most hotly tipped debuts for months now it's been on my radar it's been something that lots of people are looking forward to reading publishing then into a pandemic where you can't actually go to any reader events and I suppose you can't go into bookshops and see it in on shelves how has that affected your experience of lockdown I think in a way, I'm the person involved who's found it the least weird. First of all, because I haven't published previous books, so I don't have any first-hand experience to compare it to. And also because I don't generally keep up with um, the media or marketing aspects of other books. Because as a lifelong disabled reader, I've always found conventional promotion of books quite inaccessible. Like I have to really personally like an author to be able to hack going to a physical event because it's all just so much for me. So in a way, it's nice knowing that I'm putting the book out in a way that will reach readers who have my issues with engagement with conventional forms of putting things out. And I also don't have a sense of loss because it wasn't like I was following the release of other people's books through those kind of methods either because it's not very autism friendly. So um, it's pretty good for me. And did you have lots of events and public speaking things and, you know, engagements and parties lined up? And if so, how were you feeling about those, given that, as you say, they're not necessarily where you feel most comfortable? 
Yeah, I suppose I don't feel like I have a great deal of power to change how the industry does stuff as a debut author, because there's this expectation that you should be grateful for everything. And I am. But equally, I did feel an element of guilt about promoting my work in ways that's inaccessible to the very people that I care most about. So I feel quite good that it's instead happening in ways that hopefully you're able to reach more readers. So what have you been doing instead? I know you're on Twitter and Instagram. What kinds of promotion have you been doing? Probably my favourite thing so far was a live tweeted um, thread that I did for Blackwells about the novel where I outlined why it's not really a love triangle and a little bit about how I wrote it and just throwing things out there, which I love because there's something so unlawfully fundamentally about Twitter as a platform. It doesn't matter who's tweeted something. It just does not have this weight of authority attached to it because they're on Twitter. So mm. it, I'm uncomfortable with trying to shape with any degree of oversight how people respond to the book. That's just so at odds with how I read other authors myself. So I really like being able to throw stuff out there and just be like, this is one way you could read it. But if that's not how you want to, then that's your right. And given what you said earlier about the kind of pressures the whole situation has been putting on your brain, have there been times when it's been hard for you to kind of muster up the, I suppose, enthusiasm or energy to do that? On the one hand, obviously having your first book out is hugely exciting. On the other hand, I mean, personally, I know that I feel that I haven't been firing on all cylinders since the situation uh, that we're in came to pass and you know even though in basically every single way I'm extremely lucky it still had a an impact on enthusiasm for things I usually enjoy or productivity or um, my ability to focus and I wondered how it had impacted the promotion that you had been doing and I suppose your enjoyment of this moment you know reading the reviews are you still able to relish it? So again, without wanting to sound ungrateful, I hadn't mentally bracketed this time as something that I was going to enjoy because the realities of the world right now are so ableist that putting a book out while autistic was always going to be difficult for me. And I'd sort of resigned myself to that as the cost of getting to have a writing career. So for me, it's actually a sense of relief that I'm not being stretched in all these ways that I don't feel wanted how to be, but that I don't feel powered to change. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. When were you diagnosed as autistic? Because I, I know it wasn't immediately. And, and I know you've spoken before of your relief at your diagnosis. Yeah, so it's kind of a long story. Basically, when I was 16, I was flagged as having autistic traits, but it, I wasn't there for an autism assessment. So it wasn't a formal diagnosis at that stage. And then I got a formal one last year. And one thing that I've seen on your your Twitter is is the hashtag actually autistic, which I hadn't heard of before, which I think is really interesting. Can you tell me what it means and what the importance of it is? So there's a horrific trend that I think applies to disability more broadly, where rather than letting disabled adults speak for ourselves, we listen to the abled parents of disabled children. And that shapes a lot of really unfortunate discourse around it, where, for example, I constantly have to clarify that I want to be called an autistic person, not a person with autism. And people will go like, oh, but I've heard other people saying you're meant to say a person with autism. And it's 99% of the time a listic parent who have an autistic child and they see autism as an illness so they're pushing those kind of terms but for autistic people ourselves it's like it's my brain why is that a problem so actually autistic is 
I suppose, coagulating around that idea that we should listen to actual autistic people, not um, people who work with autistics, not people whose child is cursed with this horrific neurology. Um, so it's just the principle that we apply to so many other social justice issues of centering the people it affects the most. How fascinating. I realise that I've honed in on this now because because you mentioned it earlier on, and I'm sure it's a subject we'll return to, but I suppose it would be good at this point to give listeners a little bit of background about you. You mentioned that you were in Dublin where you grew up. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and, and what you were like as a, a child? Were you a big bookworm? Yeah, I think I found reading a really useful way to learn the things that I needed to know without having to cope with environments that weren't designed to accommodate me. So a lot of why I survived academically was because even though I found the classroom way too overstimulating, I was able to find things out from books and then wield that in exams as appropriate. And I learned a lot about how to socialise and talk to people from books. Like one reason that my idiolect isn't especially Irish is because um, the the literature that I read as a child wasn't primarily in Irish English and I don't pick up how I talk as much from conversations as I do from reading because when I'm talking to people it's often just staying afloat whereas when I'm reading I have more space to just soup up the language so yeah my childhood was centered very much around my reading material. And what were the books that made a big influence on you? Anne of Green Gables was a major one and I think it shaped my subsequent adult um, passion for the Victorians as well. I just loved that celebration of imagination without romanticising it too much and also having the character face the difficulties of grounding that and having to exist in the real world too. Now that's really interesting because something that I've read in interviews with you before is that when you were at university you went to Trinity in Dublin when you were at university you went along to the literature society in your first year and you went to one session of the creative writing group and found it all so terrifying you never went back which funnily enough is exactly what I did with drama society and I've always regretted that can you tell me about that and why you were intimidated by that arena and I suppose how you then re-entered it as <laughs> as a published author well I think in a way it was removed from how I later went about becoming a published author because we're so centered around reading your work aloud in front of other people and processing their feedback on the spot and giving them feedback so there's this layer of social anxiety surrounding the whole thing that I was later able to get away from by just writing on my own emailing my work to people if I did it all just avoiding that immediate verbal aspect and I think I almost had more anxiety talking to other people about their work than mine because if someone's giving you feedback on your work especially if you're the fresher who's there for the first time they're going to be fairly nice so you just just sit there and nod but telling other people why you liked their stuff without inadvertently saying the wrong thing that's a lot more anxiety provoking I think. Mm. And you went on you did do some public speaking at university is that right? I'm very interested in that because you'd you'd assumed it wasn't your thing and then and then you got in into it. Can you tell me a little bit about that and and how you find that particularly as an autistic person? I think the, the declared art of this of competitive debating gave me a lot more freedom to perform the required behaviours because if you're meant to be your candid self in something like literary reading and you're being judged on that basis 
that in a way a lot more pressure than if there's an understanding that you're following a very scripted format advocating something you mightn't necessarily believe in along preordained structures that you've taught yourself specifically to do that thing and I think when there's that understanding that it's a persona you can just get into it with more gusto and then having learned that ability to get into a persona with gusto you can take things even where you're circling back to the assumption that it's really you so I think I still adopt that psychology when I'm doing forms of public speaking as myself because even though people are thinking of it as me I can privately say it's not really me. And at what stage did you start becoming interested in writing fiction yourself after your undergraduate degree you did a master's at Oxford in Victorian literature I think you also lived abroad in both Singapore and Hong Kong where you did teaching English as a foreign language can you tell me a little bit about I suppose why you moved abroad and why you did a master's in Victorian literature and where in amongst all this your move into fiction writing came from? I think my life decisions tend not to be projected very far forward when I make them. I just look at what I want to do in the next year or so. And that seems to be broadly how you can bracket the stages of my life post-college so far. So it was just about what made sense in the moment and uh, that might be hard to reconcile with maybe the impression of my personality that's just come across but I think it's precisely because there are so many contingencies that if I tried to think more than a year or two ahead at a time I'd just completely freeze on the spot and not do anything. So what took you to Singapore and then to Hong Kong? Just the practicalities of being Irish like it's impossible or extremely difficult to rent in Dublin with most entry-level salaries so that was out and mm. I didn't want to live with my parents, so I had to go. And TEFL is a relatively easy job to get if you have an English degree. And you started writing Exciting Times while you were in Hong Kong, is that is that correct? Yeah. And how did you fit it in around teaching? What was your, I suppose, your life and routine like at the time? I mostly just did it in my room on public transport or I'd go to cafes on my lunch break and kind of tap away at it there. I'm never quite sure when people say they need a specific space or a specific thing to do to write if they're just very different to me or are they narrativizing something that's actually just a habit. But for me, it was just whenever I had a reasonably long stretch of time that I felt like spending writing, I then used that time, which sounds so unromantic, but I think that was the reality of it, just um, get the words out and then fix it later. Was it your first attempt at a novel? Um, no, I've always been attempting novels, but... I don't think it's been in a sort of frustrated artistic effort sort of way. I think it's that it comes from a place of curiosity about the construction of other people's novels. So I've worked on projects until it's taught me whatever I wanted to find out about how novels work in general, and then I've abandoned it. And I think Exciting Times came at a stage where I felt I needed to write a whole thing to answer the questions that I had about the role that the different parts play in the books that I like. That's so interesting. I've never heard anyone say that before. So when you say you've always been writing novels, when did you start? Like, that's really difficult to say, because the things that I've enjoyed reading have always been novels. I only developed any real interest in short stories in college. And even then, it was from a place of there are so many interesting writers who don't write novels that I need to be aware of. So in terms of 
pure enjoyment of form. It's always been novels. So to me, it has never made sense to sit down and try to write something that hasn't been a novel because that's just the form that I know by far the best. And I think it wouldn't make a great deal of sense to work in forms that you weren't familiar with. Is it difficult to stop working on them when you do, having created characters and narrative and and invested time and presumably emotion? Or are you able to put them down quite easily? Quite easily, I think, because if I weren't able to put them down, then I would continue the novel to fruition. I never get a feeling of, I can't let go of this, but I don't want to finish it. Either I'm sick of it and I leave it, or I do finish it. And where did the idea behind Exciting Times come from? I find that a really difficult question to answer because I think it assumes a level of preconception that I just don't have when I write things. I would Mm. never be able to construct a pitch for a novel and then execute the pitch. So it's always starting with something very small about a character or a scene and then fleshing it out and then letting the dominoes fall from there. And obviously I might make steering decisions along the way if I think it's getting a bit slow, if I want to do something different. But anything that I say about, like, here's where I got my ideas from is just me looking at it post hoc and going... I think this looks like this other thing, so let's just say that. So basically, it's a question that I always have to wildly improvise when I'm asked. Because Ava teaches English, and because it's set in Hong Kong, inevitably, you must get asked if it's autobiographical and and how much of it is autobiographical. This is something that we've talked about quite a lot in this podcast, because there's a big debate about how that question tends to be asked of female authors rather than male have you been asked that a lot and how do you feel about that question yeah I have been asked it by pretty much every interviewer I think initially I found it irritating because it's gendered and how it's directed but I feel like when you get asked an irritating question many times you eventually get so I suppose blank to the whole thing that you just roll off um, whatever answer you've prepared but I now can't remember what that answer is I think I'm now at a stage where I'm just like, well, I privately know that that's not true and I can't help people making assumptions to the contrary. So I can say once it's not true. And if I insist vociferously after having said that, then they'll probably just think I'm trying to deny something. The other question you must get all the time is the Sally Rooney question. In virtually every review and and, and almost every interview with you that I've, I've read, uh, her name gets mentioned, the comparison, the sort of you know, the, the next Sally Rooney uh, tag. How do you feel about that? I just don't really know what it means because there's a level of just social awkwardness surrounding it because Sally and I are close friends of many years and I don't want to be discussing someone that I know privately with people who don't know them privately for the consumption of other people who know neither of us privately. So there's that. But there's also just, I'm not sure how those reviewers approach books in general is it the case that whenever there's a new release they look for the author who is last published of the same age gender nationality and assessed on that basis or is it just something that they do with young Irish women and that will colour how I feel about that comparison I think not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with either making that comparison or with the comparison itself but it just seems weird to me that people find it inevitable to draw parallels in that way when I don't think I've particularly foregrounded my age, gender and nationality and how I'd like people to approach my work and I also don't know if anyone else has except people assuming that other people are going to do it like I think it's that layer of smugness about it that I dislike it's 
it's not that people go, I think it's like this. It's they go, well, other reviewers will inevitably do this, so I need to discuss it too. When in fact, I can't find a single reviewer who initially did it that the others are then responding to, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it is strange. It, it's. Do you think it's something that women tend to get more than men? I think there's suddenly an assumption that women are attempting to imitate other women when we write, but... I think it comes from a place of surprise at the idea that women can find things intrinsically rewarding. Mm. So, you know, that that idea that you have goals to be received in a certain way, I think ultimately treads back to a perception of women as doing things for the approval and consumption of those around them, which, to be fair, with literary production is more tied up in the form itself than in perhaps other means of expressing yourself and making things because novels gain meaning from being read by others. So it would be disingenuous of me to say I only write for myself when I'm literally using human language to do that. Mm. But the degree to which we assume that women are trying to belong to a tradition, I think, is bound up in our view of women as sociable and how they approach things as opposed to individual. That's really interesting. Let's turn to the book. Um, there's so many interesting themes and subjects discussed, uh, whether that's kind of sexuality and, and relationships or uh, sort of class and money and power dynamics in relationships. One thing that I was quite interested in uh, is, is kind of the sort of presentations of, of, of gender and uh, sexuality, you know, without giving too much away, Ava starts a, a sort of quite intriguing relationship with a woman called Edith. And there's a section that really stayed with me where they they go and get coffees and Ava gets one with charcoal and cashew milk and Edith gets a pink dragon fruit one. And, and Ava goes, I considered asking if that made me the man, but decided ironic heteronormativity was still heteronormative and also that it was too early to make that joke. I know that you uh, are interested in, in concepts of gender in literature, and I wondered if you could kind of tell me a little bit about that and tell me why you wanted to explore that in the book. Sure. I think it's an aspect of both writing about queer women and being one that you can't rely on your romantic relationships being scripted to the same degree. And I think that's one of the reasons that the two take so long to get together because there's no blueprint that they can follow. And that's something that plagues you in real life also if you're a woman who wants to date women. So um, on a representational level, it was cathartic to get that down on the page and I hope that it's an experience that other queer women will see themselves in, but it also does just affect the mechanics of how you're writing about them. And it's impossible to extricate that from gender because it's so bound up in our broader expectations of how women ought to behave. Like the reason that there's no socially scripted way for a woman to approach a woman is that combination of the fact that we pathologize queerness as predatory and the role that we give women is that of the pursued not the pursuer so I think there's a point in the book where Ava wonders if she's being creepy or if she's just fancying someone and the answer is 
that we don't have a broadly understood social script for those things that queer women can follow, which is great because there's that freedom to chart your own terrain that maybe heterosexual relationships wouldn't have. And Ava's relationship with Julian suddenly is mired in so much that's greater than either of them. So it's not that that's a cloudless alternative either, but the drawback of that is you do need to be better at openly communicating what you want, which isn't among Ava's chief strengths as a character. I know from talking to you before, in fact, that you sometimes change the gender of your characters when you're writing fiction. Can you tell me about that? And isn't that difficult? Doesn't it completely change the identity of the character? It does, but I think in fruitful ways. And the impact of that and how much of a headache it can cause me really depends on how much the character figures. Because I think it's worth casually diluting cultural assumptions when you can. So It might be that a female doctor is only referenced in one scene, but if it takes two seconds to weigh in on the underrepresented side of a cultural split rather than reinforcing it, then why not? And I think that's the sort of very slight effort that for good reasons isn't broadly discussed. It would be obscene to grant an entire review to the revolutionary act of making a woman a doctor, but it's worth doing in passing. And I think that's true for all sorts of representation, because often the way a cultural assumption gets built is through a thousand tiny, inoffensive in themselves instances on the wrong side of it. But then for more major characters, it really ties to how I write about sexuality, too, because often I'll find myself using something that I find a bit dull or a bit done or that I just don't have as many questions about as you need to to find it interesting to write about. And then if you simply change the gender of one of the characters in a queer context, that definitely makes it interesting because conflict is what drives a novel. And if the form of your relationship is socially accepted, that's conflict right there. But even in platonic relationships, it completely alters the dynamic I have no idea what my friendships with straight men would look like if I were straight. And finding out can be really interesting and can, like you say, trudge up all sorts of stuff. Because I think your job as a writer is often to give yourself these headaches. The other thing that I found really interesting in the book was the sort of look at class. That's a big dynamic between Ava and Julian. He's a posh wealthy banker and his friends make remarks about her and her background and at one stage you know he tries to figure out if she's got a posh Irish accent or a a not posh Irish accent and it's interesting because she lives off his money to an extent or at least he subsidizes her lifestyle which is something she feels slightly uncomfortable about but then also not she feels quite pragmatic about the whole thing can you tell me how, why you wanted to, to look at that, those different power dynamics that play out when you have a financial discrepancy and, and whether that has come into play in your own life? I mean, you've, you know, you've spoken about not being able to afford to not work uh, while pursuing creative projects. And, and it's interesting because often, you know, there are debates about the arts and about literature being dominated by, I suppose, the wealthy who who can afford to indulge creative pursuits and the knowledge that it's not going to bankrupt them. Yeah, I suppose all my writing about money, class and the means of survival comes from the assumption 
that a job isn't a good thing, that empowerment for women doesn't look like securing and maintaining employment in any given role. And that's part of why I struggle to answer succinctly when people ask, when did you want to be a writer? Because to me, desiring to write novels is so separate from desiring to put on your tax forms. That's how you make your primary income. So once you start from that place of there not being a tainted way to survive capitalism, there are ways that you might emotionally feel differently about to others, but they all are ultimately bound up in systems that just need to go to have anything resembling a fair society for the vast majority of people, then it becomes interesting to go, what does that do to your individual relationships? Do you still approach things like directly taking money from your banker friend with the same aspect of, well, if I were in an office job, I'd still be bound up in things I don't agree with anyway? Or is that too much of a write-off? Because I also find it tiresome when people completely distance themselves from any personal responsibility for their decisions by doing the, there's no ethical consumption under late capitalism anyway, thing by rote, when fine, but you can probably get your books from an Indian, not Amazon or whatever, and it's not going to overthrow the, the universe, but it's um, a, a degree of nuance that is sometimes missing in Twitter discourse. So I think novels are sometimes a space to just let characters do uncomfortable things and weather their discomfort and not arrive at a conclusion. To the extent that fiction is intellectually useful, which is something I find it hard to consciously speculate about because I don't write fiction with initial intellectual goals, I think it does provide us a space where we can suspend judgment long enough to take in different shades of things. I don't think I'd ever want to write or find myself convinced by a novel that I felt had successfully advanced an argument to me, but I'm very interested in ones that just let me experience issues on a plane where I don't have to fall on one side of a binary split and where I can just see things happen and see what that does. Can you tell me how you got the book published, how it went from, I mentioned the seven-way bidding war earlier. I mean, how did you go from writing writing this on, on public transport and in snatches of time while living in Hong Kong to having it as one of the hotly tipped debuts of the year? Did you complete the manuscript and then find an agent? What was your path to publication? Pretty much that. Yeah, I finished the book. Um, Sally read an early draft and put a chapter in the Stinging Fly Journal. Later, I sent it to an agent and we did some edits and then she sent it out to publishers in February 2019 and now it's being published. And can I ask how it feels? It sounds like a trite question and I don't mean it in the way it sounds. How does it feel then to have this thing that you've worked on, I suppose privately, become the subject of a seven-way bidding war and also become the subject of endless book reviews? How do you find that? Because that would be, I would find that quite discombobulating, uh, I think. And I wondered what your experience had been like. I suppose there are two levels of processing it, the first being literary and the second being personal. So on a personal level, it's obviously intensely weird to become an object of public scrutiny and to have to discuss oneself in that context. Mm. But in literary terms, it just doesn't really affect things very much because the final text is already there. I can't change it based on what people say about it. If they say something that I find useful for work going forward, then brilliant. 
if they don't, then I can disregard it. So I think that degree of distance is a useful quality to maintain and cultivate. It's interesting. An interview I read with you, I think it was from a little while ago, was that when you were at university, someone had told you to stop apologising and that you had kept that advice in mind and now didn't go around apologising and didn't sort of go around being self-deprecating. And first of all, I wonder if you could tell me about that. And second of all, I wonder if you could, if that has helped you in your reaction to things like public scrutiny and reviews, because it sounds to me like you've got a pretty robust sense of self. I think I would be more anxious about people's reactions and bound up in what other people thought. And it it seems like you've got quite a good sort of armour against that. Yeah, I suppose. There are two levels of apology, social and internal. So the original context for that comment was um, when I was giving speeches and I would say to the start, sorry, I know this isn't going to be very good. And they tell me not to say that because then that gives whoever's judging you permission to think that you're worse. And it's really interesting in competitive debating because there is that social aspect to how you get ranked as a team and so on, where a judge will subconsciously be more likely to place your team lower if they think you're less likely to give them trouble for it later. So in that context, it's extremely useful not to set them up to think that you're the person that's easiest to put last. But the thing is, in the real world as a woman, it's often way more useful to do that kind of thing because in other contexts, if you don't say, don't worry, I know this isn't good, then people will hold you to a different standard where they think the only alternative to constant self-deprecation is having a massive ego when what I try to do is have neither and just to put work out there without trying to shape either way how people respond to it. And probably that gets on some people's nerves. Probably other people like it and probably the vast majority of people in the world have no opinion on it because they haven't heard of me and never will. So that's quite nice and I think that's my preferred mode of reception of all. Just reading my book if they do at all with very little um interest or awareness of me. Do you ever get writer's block? Do you ever find yourself unable to write? Definitely in terms of time and energy. Like I try to be forgiving of myself if I just don't have the cognitive ability to write because the alternative to that isn't writing well it's sitting down and producing something that's no good but in terms of having the energy and time and space to write but just not having ideas I think what I do then is just read and it's not that I'd then start imitating whatever I'd just read it's more it feels like it activates a bit of my brain that's removed from my immediate surroundings so then I start getting imaginative again. So you're obviously busy promoting this in a weird way, busy while being confined. And um, Can I yeah. ask what's next for you? Is there anything uh, else you have on the horizon? Is there anything you're working on that you're excited about? Um, of course, totally, you know, it's a, it's a strange question to ask because you've just accomplished publishing a novel so if, if you're not working on anything that's totally fine yeah well so I think it's a feature of my personality that um very well-meaning statements like that I'm just like why are you saying I can't do it I can do it um so I have a draft of book two but it's quite depressing in present circumstances so I'm also working on the third book and I think probably which one ends up being my published book two will just depend on 
my headspace which one interests me more maybe which one I feel like being in like I think one thing I'm aware of now that I didn't have a mind for book one was it helps if a novel is something that you not only want to work on for a long period of time but are also happy to keep talking about well after you've written the last word and edited and all the rest of it so I think that will probably shape what I decide about write about in future like I'll see myself doing interviews like this and think is this something that will still interest me at a level of discussion as well as of production how long does it take you to write a book the first draft is very quick um I think the first draft of book two took two or three months but that's because I'm not paying any attention to the language and if I decide to change the gender of a character or kill them all for resuscitate them or whatever I just keep going like it's something that would make no human sense to anyone else reading it and then I think because I find daily life so difficult and treacherous, um, I accidentally end up having long incubation periods. And I can't say whether I would impose those if it was ever the case that I found my life completely manageable all the time. But as it is, I just get these moments of busyness and subsequent burnout. And the result of that is that I leave things to stew for very long and then I come back to them with fresh eyes. So we're running out of time, which means I'm going to have to let you go, uh, which I don't want to do because you've been so fascinating to talk to. But before I do, uh, just one final question, which I ask everyone, which is, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, wow. Um, See, the thing is, I feel like most of what would have helped me was understanding earlier that I'm queer and autistic but I also don't think that I had the social apparatus available to me to come to those realizations so um live in a different time live in a different time yeah do you mean a time in the future yeah or a different social milieu because it's not that there aren't people my age who realize those things about themselves much earlier that's so interesting Nisha I wish I could talk to you for another hour but I can't because I actually I know you have to go and do other interviews yeah I'm I'm going to let you go um but thank you so much for coming on you've been such a joy to talk to and to everyone listening exciting times is out now so that's it from us thank you for listening to the Sunday Salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. So I'd be very, very grateful. Until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.